So growing up、um, as a child, my grandparents lived in the same neighborhood that I did. And I loved going to their house. We went often. And the reason I like going to their house because their house was awesome. They had this great lot, and their house was a two story red brick home that looked completely out of place in the neighborhood because it looked like it was built in the 1800s.、It、had these huge trees with moss hanging around it. I mean, it looked like something out of a movie. And, and the outside of the house was great, but what I loved as a child was the inside of the house. My grandparents collected antiques. And so they had swords and rifles from the Civil War and from the Revolutionary War. They had a clock that was、uh, commissioned and built for Benjamin Franklin. And I think that they were actually、um, slightly, moderately, probably severely terrified every time I came to the house because there's a strong chance I was going to break something、um, or、uh, mess with something. But there were two things about the house that I loved more than anything. One was that they had a bomb shelter. Yes, they had a bomb shelter built under the house during the Cold War because there was fear that possibly South Florida could get bombed. And so they had a bomb shelter built. And so as a child, I went in the bomb shelter. I thought it was so cool that when you go under the house and the bomb shelter is like cold under there. And so we would play around, and there w a s rats and bugs and things, but I didn't care. But the best thing was not the bomb shelter, it was the attic. The attic was amazing. If you go up this attic, it's this old wood attic with these big beams, and you, I'd go up there and spend hours up there pretending like I'm hiding out. This is my home, and I'd create all these crazy stories. You, you would never think that I would do that, I know.、Um, but here's what happened with this attic this wasn't any attic. This attic had a rope that you could pull, and a bookshelf would come sliding down in the front. So when you opened the door, it just looked like a closet of books. No, it was not. If you know the secret way, the books could go up and you go up into the attic. I mean, it was the coolest thing as a child. So we spent a lot of time up there, bomb shelter attic, not as much time in the house. And this last week, I was driving、uh, through the neighborhood. My grandparents used to live, they sold the house a few years ago. And as I'm turning the corner and I'm looking to see their house, it's gone, leveled. Only thing that's left is grass. And, I, and it was hard to see that. Because there were so many memories and so much was attached to that house and, and that lot and the times that we spent there. And now all that was left was a grass lot. And th- this is similar, but much worse, in, in the story of Nehemiah. If you've never read this story before, what is taking place is Jerusalem has been leveled, it has been destroyed, and Nehemiah is under the assumption that probably it's getting back to where it used to be, it's being rebuilt. And he hears news that it's not. It's broken down, it's destroyed, it's on fire, it's totally in shambles, and it, it totally destroys him. It doesn't only make him sad, but it burdens him. And it resolves, he cre- creates in him a resolve to, to take action. So we're going to pick up the story in the context of that. Before we jump in, I want to give you a little bit of background because I think it's important.、Uh, right before this book, right attached to Nehemiah, is a book called Ezra. And there are two books in our Bible, but really they're just one book. Uh, that we've separated. And so these books cr- are, they talk about the same time period and the same people. A little different focus in each book.、Uh, so the Babylonians have come into Jerusalem, into Judah and Israel, and they've conquered. And they took all the, Babyl- all the Jews,、uh, most of them, a lot of the leaders, and they took them into exile in Babylon. And they left some back there, and now the, the Israelites are, are in exile, they're in Babylon. And after about 50 years, The, the king of Persia, of Babylon, says, Okay, we're going to send some of you back. 
and you can begin to rebuild the city. So there's three characters in this story in this time period. One of them is Zerubbabel. He is in the book of Ezra, and he is sent back with a large number of men to begin to rebuild the temple. It was destroyed, and so they're going to begin to rebuild it. It's really important to the Jewish people that the temple is being rebuilt. So he goes back and starts that. And then you have Ezra who comes, and Ezra is sent, and he is to teach the Torah, and he is to help rebuild the community in the city. And then we have our guy, Nehemiah. The book is named after him. And he is sent to rebuild the walls. And this is the context in which we are picking up the story. And and Nehemiah uh, is an interesting character because, as we see, he's the cupbearer of the king. And the king at this time is Artaxerxes. And he is the king over all of Persia. And at this time, uh, Persia is at a, a pretty hairy situation because there are revolts happening all over the empire, most notably in Egypt. And so there's revolts happening, there's some instability in the empire, and Artaxerxes, the king, realizes that the Jewish people are really important to create stability in the empire because they're kind of a border between the other areas of the empire that are revolting. So he wants to make sure that the relationship between the Israelites and the king and the Persians is good. And so in light of this, we pick up this story, and Nehemiah hears about the state of Jerusalem. And so he has a little bit of leverage, as we're going to see as we work through this new series, Making Our House a Home, as we're talking about Nehemiah. He's going to have a little leverage to begin to, to, to bring aid and help in the city. In the very beginning of the passage, it says this. Now, it happened in the, months, the month of Shilev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So this man, Hanani, is most likely his actual brother, and he comes from Jerusalem to Babylon, where Nehemiah is, and he says, I want to update you on kind of family matters. So he's most likely going just to say, hey, here's how the family's doing in Jerusalem. Here's what's going on. Let me tell you what's going on between mom and dad, and you know, brother Reuben, he's freaking out. I don't know if he had a brother Reuben, but maybe, you know, he was a bad guy. So he's talking about the family matters, right? And, and in the context of this conversation, Nehemiah says, hey, that's great, but I want to know about our people. How are the people in the city? How's the city of Jerusalem and its people? Expecting to hopefully hear, oh, that Jerusalem's great, right? Things are going really well. It's being rebuilt. The walls are on their way. The temple's being rebuilt. It's not as good as the first one, but we're getting back there, and it's going to be wonderful, and we really miss you, Nehemiah. You need to come back. I know Babylon's great. You have a great job, all this different stuff. But can you come home? We miss you. Fully expecting most likely to hear that. Here's what Nehemiah hears instead from his brother and those that are with him. In verse 3, it says that the remnant, they say to him, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Most likely this is is a summary of their conversation. And here are the two main points that the author wants you to know. The remnant, those living there that have survived the exile, are in great trouble. And there's great shame upon them. And the walls of the city are not only not being built, but they are totally broken down. And the gates are on fire. Things are not good. Jerusalem is in trouble. And when Nehemiah hears this, it, it destroys him. He's not just saddened. 
He's burdened. It destroys him. In verse 4, he says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You may be thinking to yourself, okay, why is he reacting like this? I understand that things aren't ideal. I mean, he says that the remnant is in great trouble and shame because the walls are broken down around fire. I mean, I understand that walls are important to a village or to a city because they provide protection. But it, does it seem a little extreme? I mean, he hears the news that people are in trouble because there's no walls. And he weeps and mourns and fasts and prays for days upon days upon days. And you read that and you think, I mean, he had some really unhealthy expectations, which I think he did. He probably assumed that things were going okay, that the walls were being rebuilt, the temple, because Zerubbabel was sent to rebuild the temple, and Ezra was rebuilding the community. Things were probably starting to come together. And when he hears about what the state of Jerusalem is and the people, he's undone because he didn't expect it. But the question is, why would this news absolutely send Nehemiah into a spiral? Totally into a spiral of prayer and mourning and weeping for days upon days. And the reason is, is because Jerusalem isn't just any city. Jerusalem is the city of God. It is the city of peace. It is where God and man come together and meet. And where, where man and sinful human beings come to worship God at the temple. It's God's city. See, this news that Jerusalem is broken down and weak and vulnerable and unstable and full of shame is not the way that Jerusalem is meant to be and supposed to be. Jerusalem is to be a place of peace, a place of security, a place of community, a place of holiness. It is called Jerusalem, the city of peace. That is the design, that is the intention of God's city, that it should be those things, and Jerusalem is none of those things. It is completely in shambles and broken down. It is not how God has designed or desires for his city and his people to live. And it's interesting here how Nehemiah responds, right? He's in Babylon, and he hears about what's taking place with God's people and God's city, and it undoes him because he knows that this isn't how it's supposed to be. But you have to understand Nehemiah because his, his position, his job is really, really important. He's the cupbearer of the king, which means most likely he is the second most powerful and influential person in the entire Persian Empire, second only to the king. His job is very important. He has a great job. We know that he is connected to and in many ways assimilated into Persian culture because he uses the word God of heaven in this passage. And that was the term that they would use in Babylon for God. And so he's obviously attached to the Persian culture and he's associated with it. He probably enjoys Babylon and all the luxuries that he has because of his position and because of his job. He surely has friends and he's living a great life, and yet when he hears about Jerusalem, a city that he doesn't work in, that he doesn't live in, with people that aren't necessarily his really close friends, yes, he's connected to them, they're his people, but it undoes him. And you may think to yourself, yeah, Carter, yeah, it should. Because Jerusalem is his true city, that's his true culture. Though he's in Babylon, Jerusalem is really his city. And the people there, 
the Israelites are his true people. They're his true friends. I want to press that for a second if you think that maybe it's an appropriate response to ask you the question, do you think you would have the same response? See, we, we, all of us like to associate ourselves with the hero, right? I know this more than anybody. Uh, Jessica has told me that I sleep talk. I don't know if I believe her, but she tells me that when I sleep talk, I command armies. Yes. <clears throat> so apparently in the middle of the night, I will either sit up or I shout very loud, forward men, let's get them. You know, because we're going to conquer something. We're going to make this, we're going we're gonna to win, guys. When I was a, a child, we went up to visit my grandparents who lived in, in western North Carolina. And uh, up in the mountains, the, their house was surrounded by mountains, and it was beautiful. And while we were up there, there was a fugitive on the loose. And uh, the fugitive was somewhere in the vicinity of where we were, in the western part of North Carolina, around these cities. And he was hiding out in the mountains, and there was a statewide search coming after him. And my siblings were scared. Well, I went to bed that night, and I woke up in the morning, and my dream was that he came by the house, and I captured him. Because, you know, I want to be the hero. That's how I associate myself. I, I think we all do that, right? We read novels, we watch films, and we associate with the protagonist. We want to be the hero. We want to be the person that succeeds and that conquers. My favorite novel, I would venture to say that the greatest novel, fiction, of all time is Lord of the Rings. And, uh, as much as I want to be Legolas with bow and arrow and ninja skills, I'm more like Schmeagol and Gollum. And all of us are, right? Schmeagol and Gollum is one person, but he's like a schizophrenic. Sometimes he's Schmeagol, he's very loyal and he's kind and he's brave, but many times he's Gollum. He is selfish and he is greedy and he is untrustworthy. He is completely corrupted. And the reality is that we are much more like Schmeagol and Gollum or Jekyll and Hyde than all of these heroes that we want to associate ourselves with. And so we like to think, of course I would respond like Nehemiah. They're my people. That's my city. And I would do whatever it took to go and lend aid. But the reality is, I think if we really analyze ourselves, if we're honest, when we hear news about suffering, when we hear about people's needs, when we hear about things that are broken down and we're presented uh, with people that are in great trouble and shame, we don't always respond like Nehemiah. We may be saddened. We may offer to help a little bit. We may pray, but oftentimes when we pray, we maybe pray that somebody, God sends somebody else to help, right? If we're honest, we're very, very careful to protect our lifestyle because we really like our lifestyle. And Nehemiah had a great lifestyle. I, I mean, for all intents and purposes, he has a lifestyle that everybody wants. Extremely successful, great job, influential, friends, a culture that he's assimilated into. And yet when he hears the news, his response is not, oh, that makes me really sad. I'm sorry. I, I, I probably can help a little bit. I have an opportunity here to maybe leverage a few things. Let me know how I can help. But I got a really important job. I got a lot going on here. And I, I can't do too much. God will send somebody else. Don't worry. God is sovereign. He's in control. Even if he did that, we would say, well, he's, he's still being generous. He's still offering something. At least he's concerned enough to want to help in some way. But Nehemiah's response is that he's burdened and broken down for days upon days upon days where he's weeping, he's mourning, he's praying, he's fasting because this is seriously affecting him. 
And his first response is to pray. In the front of your bulletin, there's a, a quote by Corey Ten Boom, and I love it. It's a question that, that I think she asked of all of us. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? And Nehemiah is very apparent that it was his steering wheel. And I think how you handle suffering and how you handle need that is presented to you will easily answer that question. Whether or not prayer is your steering wheel or if it's your spare tire is your first response prayer. It is for Nehemiah. And he prays in verse 5, he says, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. In the midst of this difficult news and difficult times, the city that he loves and people that he cares about with expectations totally broken, his first thing that he says to God is not, God, what are you doing? Why would you allow this to happen? His first thing is, God, you are good, you are awe-inspiring, and you are faithful. That's difficult. Silver last week was talking about how in, in the downs of life, when, when things aren't going as you expect, are you really trusting that God is in fact good and faithful? That's difficult. It's also very difficult to in those moments pray and the first words out of your mouth are, God, I know that even though the things that are happening around me don't make sense, and I don't understand it, you are still good. You are still faithful. To not presuppose that we know what's best is difficult. Because we do it a lot. Nehemiah does not presuppose that he knows what's best. Even though he is not okay with and happy about the circumstances in Jerusalem, and he gains a sense here that God's calling him to do something about it, his first words are to praise God for his goodness and faithfulness. But he then transitions to say, God, I'm going to share with you everything I'm feeling and thinking, and then I'm going to ask you for mercy He says in verse 6, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sin of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. See, in this context, Nehemiah continues his prayer and he asks God for his attention. He says, God, will you hear my prayer? Will you hear this confession? And we know that he didn't pray one time. It wasn't like this news has really saddened me, and so I'm going to pray one time. Here's the prayer, God. Please do something about it. If you don't, then I'm just going to move on. He's praying this prayer over and over and over and over again, day and night. And what's interesting here is that the, the, the crux of this prayer is when he says that he prays, his focus is for the people of Israel, your servants. This prayer is not about him. It's not about his needs. It's not about his desires. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Of course there's not. God calls us to bring our needs and our desires before him, but not only our needs and our desires. His prayer is connecting himself with the people of God. He he lumps himself in to their state, their trouble, their shame, and he prays on their behalf. And here's what it says that he's been praying In verse 6, he says, he's been confessing the sins of the people of Israel, saying, we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. What has Nehemiah done to cause suffering and shame and trouble in Jerusalem? Nothing. He's been in Babylon 
minding his own business, growing his work and his profession, building friends, living his life, working hard, developing his relationship with God, which is evident. It's very deep. So the question is, why would Nehemiah connect himself with the people of God in Jerusalem that are failing at rebuilding the city, that are failing at rebuilding the walls? Why would he connect himself with them? Why would he use the word we, where he says, we have sinned, we have acted corruptly, we have not kept your commandments or statutes or rules, which is to say we have utterly failed in every single way. And not only does Nehemiah connect himself with the people of God and say, we've all sinned, we're all broken down, but he also acknowledges that the current situation is deserved. Look what he says in verse 8. Remember that the word you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make a name, my name dwell there. See, in the midst of great trouble, Nehemiah says, God, I understand why this is taking place. We, the people of God, are broken. We are sinful. We rebel against you. We ignore you. We have broken all the things that you have asked us to follow, your commandments, your statutes, your rules, and you have promised us that if we ignore you and turn from you, there's going to be consequences. But he doesn't only acknowledge that. Notice what he says. He says, but. He's recalling the promises of God, and he says, but God, you have promised us that if we confess our sin and if we repent, you will gather us back together, though we are all over the place. You will gather us back together in a place that you have chosen so your name can dwell there. He's using covenantal language here. He's talking about the fact that God has entered a covenant with his people. See, this is something we have a hard time understanding because a covenant is about as, as binding of a contract as you can possibly have. See, we, we make commitments and we enter into contracts with people, but we look for ways to break them. And we're okay with breaking them. In business, oftentimes you're looking for loopholes to break commitments and contracts. In, social, in your social life, you may not feel any obligation to go to the event that you clicked going on Facebook to, Right? Or you may say, yeah, I'll be there at 7, and you may show up at 9 or not at all. We break commitments all the time, even in things that are a covenant, like marriage. We have a covenant of marriage, and yet what happens? We look for ways out. I'm just not happy. It's just not working. I think it'd be better for both of us if we went our separate ways. So we break commitments all the time, but in the Old Testament, in ancient times, they would enter into these contracts that were covenants, and they were binding. And what that meant was, if you upheld the covenant, you would receive certain blessings. And if you ignored it, and if you broke it, there would be certain curses. And oftentimes, if you broke a covenant, the curse was death. And so here, Nehemiah is saying, God, I know that you have entered into a covenant with your people all the way back in the times of Moses and Deuteronomy, where you have said, if we run after you, and if we follow you, and if we trust you, and if we obey you, there will be blessings and prosperity associated with that. And we have not. We have rebelled, and we have turned against you, and we have not. And so you have scattered us as you have promised, which was the curse, that you would scatter us in exile. And he's pleading for God to continue the pattern that has taken place all throughout the Old Testament. Here's the pattern. The people of God are living for righteousness. They are following after God. And here's what always happens. 
they rebel against God. See, see if this sounds familiar to your life. They rebel against God, and then there's a removal from that situation, and then they realize that they've been rebelling against God, and that that's not okay. So they repent, and then God restores them or reconciles them. It's a cycle that repeats time and time again throughout the entirety of Scripture. And so Nehemiah is saying here, God, I know what you have done, and I know that you're faithful and that you are good, and I know that we deserve the state that we're in because we have rebelled against you and we have turned against you, but I'm asking you to remember your promise and your covenant that as we repent, as we confess, and as we realize what we have done wrong, would you restore us? Would you come help us? Would you come to our aid? And that's exactly what he says. Look at verse 10, and he says, They are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. That statement, by your great power and by your strong hand, is used in connection with the exile, with those that were in Egypt. When God took them from Egypt through repentance and then reconciled them, then brought them back and restored them back to the promised land. He's saying, God, you have done this time and time again, just like you did in Egypt, where you have taken us, that we're rebellious, and through repentance, you have brought us back to a place that you have chosen. Will you do the same thing again now in your city in Jerusalem with your people? He's praying on their behalf. And then he, he says in verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in your name. You can feel the authenticity in his prayer, right? You can sense that he's been praying this day and night through tears on behalf of the people of God. He's lumped himself in and he's asking God to remember his covenant with his people, and to to be faithful and good as he always is. And it's in this that he knows that he must do something. As he's praying day in, day out, he realizes that there's something that he must do. And so he asks God for a personal request. You see, in the midst of his prayer, he recognizes that God has given him time and talent and resources and opportunities, and he wants Nehemiah to use them for his city and for his people. And so he's not going to sit idly by and, and, and pray only, but he's going to take action. And he's going to ask the king of Persia, as the story will continue next week, he's going to ask the king of Persia if he can go to Jerusalem and be the one that helps lead the charge to rebuild the walls. And this is nerve-wracking, because the king of Persia literally holds Nehemiah's life in his hands. Not only is that nerve-wracking, but Nehemiah probably doesn't necessarily want to leave. He has a great job with great friends and a great city with a lot of luxuries and entertainment and all types of things. You, he's want, he has everything in life that you'd want. And yet he realizes that caring for God's people and God's city is more important than what he has in his individual desires. So he prays this. He says, Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, that is, the king of Persia. Now I was the cupbearer of the king. What a way to begin a story, right? You have this man, Nehemiah, who's extremely powerful, influential, and he hears this news about his people and, and the city of God, and, and it breaks him down. He's not only saddened, but he's burdened, and he begins to pray day in and day out, asking God that he would forgive the people of God for their sins and that he would restore them 
through repentance, and he would come to their aid, and that God would use him and his time and his opportunities and his resources to, to begin to rebuild the city as it's supposed to be. And you may be thinking to yourself, okay, it's a great story, but what, Carter, what am I supposed to learn from this passage? Am I supposed to learn that I'm supposed to pray more? Yeah. Am I supposed to learn that I need to trust God in difficult circumstances? Yeah. Am I supposed to learn that I should think about others before I think about myself? Surely. But I think there's one truth and one challenge that jumps off the page to me, and that's this, that you are to believe and belong. Very simple. You're to believe and you're to belong. You see, it's very clear here that Nehemiah believes in God. He has deep faith. He trusts in God's goodness and his faithfulness, and he says that he's awe-inspiring. He's awesome. But he's not only accomplished in his professional life, he's also very much accomplished, if you will, or serves as a great example spiritually. I mean, Nehemiah really is an example of what we all aspire to be. Very successful professionally, influential in his culture, and spiritually mature and deep in his faith. He's very well-rounded. And, and we look at that and we celebrate that because we celebrate the individual. But Nehemiah here is not only concerned with himself. He is very much concerned about something bigger. See, he understands because of what he believes that he's attached to an eternal community that's more important than his individual desires. He believed in a God of heaven, but he also believed that he belonged to that God's people. And that's huge. He wasn't only focused on developing his professional life and social life in Babylon, but when he heard about the state of God's people in God's city, he was not only saddened, but burdened and resolved to do something about it. This is unique for us, right? Because we celebrate the individual. We say, live your life, figure out what you want to do in your life, run after your dreams, grind and hustle to make that happen, and do whatever you need to do to accomplish your dreams. And listen, I want to say something. There's nothing wrong with running after your dreams. There's nothing wrong with having dreams and working hard to achieve them. God, in fact, is the one that has created work, and it brings dignity, and he's calling you to work hard. It's good to have dreams and to run after them. But here's the question. When your individual desires come in contact with God's communal desires, how do you respond? When your individual desires come in contact with God's communal desires, what is your response? You see, Nehemiah, when he comes in contact with God's communal desires for his city and for his people, he lays aside his individual desires. It's not easy, but he lays them aside because he realizes the city of God and its people are more important. And for us, as we see in the New Testament, we don't have a city like Jerusalem, but we have a new Jerusalem. We have the church. That is, in fact, God's city. Think about Jerusalem. Jerusalem had the temple where sinners and God met together. They interacted and sinners worshipped God. It was a place where God's people were gathered together, though they were different. They were gathered together to share needs and share resources and care for one another. And it had walls, meaning it was a place of security and comfort. Well, what is the church? It is a place where we gather together, where we, there's a unique moment as we're gathered as one, where we as sinful people are coming before God to worship him. 
It's the new temple in many ways. It's a place where we're gathered together to share needs and to care for one another. And it's also a place that's to have walls, which is to say we're not going to put walls around this. Uh, The church would not like that. But what we're going to do is seek to provide a place that is secure and comfortable, that is stable. And so the question that I've been asking myself and I want to ask you is, do you feel the same way about the church like Nehemiah feels about Jerusalem? Do you feel the same way about God's people as Nehemiah does the Israelites? And not just those that are far off, but maybe those that are just like sitting in this room. Those are some difficult questions to ask. And the reason that Nehemiah responded this way is because he believed in God's word and the truth that he spoke about his people. And God has given us some promises and he speaks to us. He says in Ephesians that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Meaning Christ has died for us. He died for you, but he died for us. To gather us together. That we were broken down and sinful and deserving of nothing, and yet Christ died for our shame and when we were in trouble. And he died in Jerusalem. He died in God's city so that it would no longer be in one place, but it would be wherever God's people are gathered. Christ died for his church. Revelation 21 tells us that I, I, it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that is the church, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. As the picture of the bride coming down, the church to be united with Jesus, notice in that passage, we are all identified together. We are one. We are family. We are, in fact, the city of God, the new Jerusalem. And there's been a covenant that's been enacted between you and me and the church and Jesus Christ. It's a marriage covenant. That's the picture. And so if you've ever wondered, how committed is Jesus to his church? It's your answer. He doesn't just create the church and then let it go. He married the church. He died for the church. And and through his death, he married the church. And so it's to be of great concern to us as well. See, through belief, we realize that this is actually where we belong, that life is no longer just individually focused, but our lives are, in fact, to be community-driven. That has what God's Word has spoken to us, and that is true. And so here's what it should do. It should change church for you. Church is not just supposed to be somewhere that you come because you feel like you're supposed to. Church is not supposed to be something you do because it's the right religious thing to do because you're a Christian. It's not supposed to be somewhere you go because you don't have anything else to do. Church is to be exciting. It is to be beautiful. It is to be a place where we are excited to gather together because Christ has died for the church. He loves the church. He has married the church. And because we believe in the God that has loved and saved us through his life, his death, and his resurrection, we too know that we belong to something here. It's not just about me and God. It's about us and God as well. And so it should be exciting to gather together with other brothers and sisters in Christ and to sing songs to God about who he is, to pray together, to hear from his word, to see each other and to hug each other and to see how things are going. That should be exciting because this is God's city. This isn't just something we do. And so the question that I've been asking myself and the question I've been working through and I want to challenge you with is when needs are presented 
in the church, when you realize that there's some broken down walls, it's not someone else's burden. It's your burden. Because this is your city and these are your people. And we should understand through God's word that we are to lay aside our individual desires when God's communal desires are presented to us. And through his spirit and through trusting him and together encouraging and challenging and loving each other in that pursuit, that can become a reality. Let's pray.